changing something? No. Nope. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm just gonna pick up. Good morning. I'm just picking anything that I'm playing with. Oh, no, they're okay. Oh, okay. If you don't want to play, I'll just pop right. No. No, it's sad. No. You're fine, okay. And there's nothing we gotta change. I'm just being silly. Okay, that's fine. I just wanna make sure if I can if I can help in any way. I can do that. I can do that.
Good morning. Good to see you all here on this beautiful fall morning. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. Nehemiah 12, 31a. Today is our communion service, so following the worship hour, we take a 10-minute break, which is our tradition, and then when you hear the music again, regather and we'll celebrate the Lord's table. There'll be no, uh, no dinner and no evening service uh, today. Acts and Facts are here for uh, October. I was thumbing through that already this morning. The Free Grace Broadcaster also available. Please uh, take those. If you don't take those, they like pile up in the office, and <laughs> we, we need to be rid of some of that stuff. So take them, read them, use them, pass them along. Uh, there's, there's great articles in there. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. See Andrea's number again there. Financial note. 
Thank you again to our deacons who are working on the building. It's all bright white and lovely. That's a lot of work. Uh, thanks to uh, Pam, she's working on the flower beds and also painting. So thank you very much uh, for that. I have one announcement that's not in your bulletin. The new Sunday school class for junior high students will begin next Sunday. That's October the 13th, next Sunday, meeting upstairs in the library. Come learn about the covenant promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So that'll be great. I remember Dan doing an excellent Sunday school study on the covenant promises of Christ, and uh, well worth it. Um, all right, what else? Anything I missed or omitted? Grades on the junior high? I'm looking at Jolene. Seventh through ninth. Okay. Thank you very much. Yes. Oh, choir starts next Sunday afternoon. Is it be hour before? Hour before. So five o'clock next Sunday. Okay. Five o'clock next Sunday. Choir begins. Christmas is a coming. <laughs> so great. Thank you very much for that. See, we have some visitors with us. Welcome this morning. Pray that you'll be blessed for having been here. If I can direct you then to Psalm 119, read 130, uh, Psalm 119, verses 137 through 144. That's page 963 in the Pew Bible.
let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service. Phil, can I ask you to lead for us? Take your red hymnal this morning, the red trinity, <clears throat> and turn to number 469. 469 in the red. <clears throat>
ask for a, a um, favorite hymn, but I had someone ask me before service, so I'm sorry, but he beat you all. <laughs> um, go ahead, Ken. <laughs> Five, six, nine in the brown. And I know that this is the battle hymn of the Republic because he told me before church. Um, but um, why, why was this one for today? Why would you pick this today? Sorry. Do you have a reason for this one? You just really like it. Amen. It's a great hymn. All right, battle hymn of the Republic. Feel free to stand back up if you wish. You want, it's not required, but... <laughs>
Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Nehemiah 12, and we'll be reading verses 27, 28a, and then picking up again at 31, and then 38, and then 40. So we're going we're gonna to hop through that little passage there. Page 771 in the Pew Bible. Nehemiah 12, 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness and with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from one of the villages of the Metophatites. Verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs and gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. And verse 38, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people over the wall, on the wall, above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. And verse 40, so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Take your red hymnals again and turn to number 165, 165 in the red.
Our, excuse me, our scripture text this morning is from Nehemiah, chapter 12, and will be in a number of various verses there. In our last study, we noted the serious nature of taking vows. Actually, it was listed about eight things that we learned about taking vows. Number one, be quick to keep one's vows to God. Number two, God will never let you off the hook if, if you take a vow. Number three, to break a vow is to sin with dire consequences because no one forced you to take it. That's the principle behind that. Number four, God considers a person a fool who makes a vow and doesn't keep it. And remember in the scripture that the word fool is used for infidels, unbelievers. Number five, God will destroy the work of fools. Number six, vows are often spoken in rash moments, so you say little when you're talking to God. Number seven, no one is ever exonerated from a vow by claiming, oh, it was a mistake. And number eight, when you take a vow, stand in awe of God. That's uh, pretty serious stuff when people take the vow. You say, well, what's a vow? It's God, I promise. That's what a vow is. God, I promise. Keep your promises to the Lord. And if you're not going to keep them, don't make them. And don't be rash in your speech. Don't be in a hurry to make promises that you can't keep. What is the New Testament principle? Jesus said, it's simple. Just let your yes be yes. And your no, no. In other words, be people of your word. Just be so honest that whenever you say something, yes, I'm going to do this. No, I'm not going to do that. People say, that's it. He said yes or she said no, or whatever the case is, taking people at their word. And that's what the scripture teaches us as Christians to be, people of the truth and not to be rash with our lips. You know, the book of James has a lot to say about this, that people get in trouble because of, of the use of their tongues. And he says the tongue is like a fire set on, uh, it's like a, uh, an instrument set on fire from hell. Wow. Boy, and that's so true in our day. People are just demoralized by tongue lashings and lies and deception. These are all done with the tongue. And we need to be far better than that. Jesus was a person of truth. And we need to be people of truth as well. Well, for today's study, I am skipping the entire 11th chapter of Nehemiah. And the first half of chapter 12 of Nehemiah, which deal primarily with the names of the families which agreed to move into Jerusalem to boost the population of the city in Nehemiah's day. Also has the names of the official Levites, priests, singers, and so on, who were responsible to lead the people in worship. But at 12 and verse 37, we come to the dedication of the wall, the wall they built around Jerusalem. Remember that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies 
He came in, and it says in the scripture, in the book of Jeremiah, not one stone was left upon another. That's how devastating Nebuchadnezzar's uh, siege on the city was. The siege lasted three years, but when he finally got fed up with the Jews not surrendering, he just came in there and tore everything down, all the walls, all the stones, and so forth. So you just think about this. It was The place was left in rubble. And we're not talking little field stones here. We're talking stones that weighed thousands and thousands of pounds. And they had to uh, repurpose all of that stone, sort it all out, and that's where Nehemiah come in. So we want to talk today about the wall in Nehemiah's day and the dedication of it. Uh, for the Lord's sake. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We can learn something about walls and building of walls, and we can learn something of how you protect your people. We pray that you'll bless us in this hour. Let our focus be upon the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Now, it has been some time since we noted the completion of the wall. You'll find that in Nehemiah 6 and verse 15. It took a long while, but they got it completed. So a lot of water has gone over the dam since then. Ezra's reading of the law, chapter 8. The festival of booze and tabernacles, when they remember the Exodus, chapter 8, verse 13 and following. The solemn assembly, wherein the people confess their sins and praise God for his mercies, chapter 9. And finally, the pledging of their oath to obey the precepts of the Lord, chapter 10. Now that's a lot of history that is in this little book. The first thing I would bring to your attention is a question concerning this whole business of dedicating things to God. Have you ever thought about that? Should we dedicate things of this earth, especially man-made things, to God? Why do we do this? What's the purpose? What's involved in that? Well, the practice of dedication is found a number of times throughout the Bible. For example, in Ezra, at the completion of Zerubbabel's temple, we read the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the exiles, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Ezra 6, verse 16. And the next verse speaks of the animal sacrifices made that day. 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And that day the priests and the Levites were officially installed in their service roles in the temple. So dedication. Now I look at that. And it, in, to me it seems like a lot of animal sacrifices. Dedicate. This new temple. But you know when you look in the scripture. That's a drop in the bucket. Compared to the dedication of Solomon's temple. In First Kings chapter 8. Where we read. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Solomon offered a sacrifice, a fellowship offering to the Lord. 
22,000 cattle, 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the Israelites dedicated the temple of the Lord. Wow. First Kings 8, verse 62 and 63. So that was an astronomical amount of sacrifices made to the Lord. But on this occasion, verse 65 tells us, a vast assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the wadi of Egypt was gathered, and the festival lasted 14 days, so two weeks. Numbers 13.21 tells us that Hamath was the northernmost boundary of Palestine, H-A-M-A-T-H, some 500 miles from the wadi, these are little tributaries of Egypt, the territory covered by the Israelite spies on their 40-day journey when Israel entered the land and spied it out by Moses' direction. So from, from Egypt, the little tributaries that fed the Nile, from there all the way to the top of Palestine. Dedication. So at the dedication of Solomon's temple, I think it's fair to say that everyone in the land was involved. Though I'm sure that not everyone could have fit into the city of Jerusalem for the ceremony. But they were represented, however, in the huge number of animal sacrifices. In 2 Samuel 8, we have a record of David's many victories over the warring nations which surrounded him. He defeated the Philistines, the Moabites, Zoba, the Armenians, and all those victories were literally thousands of articles of silver, gold, bronze taken as booty. Verse 11 says, King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. His treasures of war, you see, were dedicated to the Lord's service. And in this same text, and recorded again in 1 Chronicles 18, when the king of Hamath heard of all of David's victories, he sent his son to sue for peace, and his son brought all kinds of silver and gold and bronze articles, which David also dedicated to the Lord along with the booty of war. 1 Chronicles 18, verse 11. Again, in 2 Kings 12, verse 4, under godly Josiah's reign, he instructs the priests, collect all the money that is brought as sacred offerings, King James Version says dedicated things, sacred offerings, bring it all to the temple of the Lord, the money collected in the census, the money received from personal vows, the money brought voluntarily to the temple, so that would be gifts of the people, right? Let every priest receive the money from one of the treasurers and let it be put to repair whatever damage is found in the temple. So what we have so far then is this idea in scripture of buildings being dedicated to God, articles of war or booty or windfalls, which no one counted on, right? They're being dedicated. Money brought by worshipers as gifts to God or as receipts for personal vows to God. Wow, 
That's a lot of things that can be dedicated according to the scriptures. Second Chronicles 30 verse 24 portrays under godly Hezekiah another kind of dedication. The dedication of people in their service to God. This was the reinstatement of the Passover celebration under King Hezekiah after many years in which the celebration was not observed. The scripture says, because not enough priests had consecrated themselves and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. Verse 3, 2 Chronicles 30. So simply put, the priests were disobedient and the people were indifferent. Even on this occasion, when Hezekiah sent couriers with a proclamation call for the people to assemble in Jerusalem for the feast, we read, the people scorned and ridiculed them. Verse 10. But some repented, some listened, some did come. Verse 24 and following speaks of many sacrifices being offered. A great number of priests consecrated themselves. There's your dedication. The entire assembly of Judah rejoiced along with the priests. There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them, for their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. Second Chronicles 30. Then the opening verses of chapter 31 tell how these Israelites went out through the towns of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh, the tribes, and smashed the sacred stones, that would be the Baals, cut down the Asherah poles, and destroyed the high places used by the people to worship idols. So there was a great purge that took place, a cleansing of idolatry out of Israel. So, here is a text which deals with people being dedicated to the Lord. Only the emphasis is on the people doing this themselves. That's why why the word consecrate is used. If we're talking about setting apart a building or some other inanimate object, the word used is dedicate. We're going to dedicate this building. We're going to dedicate the organ. We're going to dedicate things. If you're talking about setting apart people, the obligation is on the person's own cooperation, and the word is consecrate. The same principle, but you're dealing with two different entities. And this demonstrates how wide-scale practice in the Bible, the times of dedication of things or consecration of people to God, was both was going on. Now, what was the idea or concept behind these dedications? If we were to consider for a moment Solomon's dedication of the temple, we would immediately discover that the glory of the occasion centered in the person of God. Let me read it for you. 1 Kings 8. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hands has fulfilled what he has promised with his own mouth to my father David. 1 Kings 8, 14 and following. So God's promise to honor David's desire to build a temple by allowing Solomon to do it, who was the then ruler on the throne. 
In Solomon's prayer of dedication, let me read it for you. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. And his prayer goes on to praise God for being one who keeps all of his promises, who hears the prayers of his people, for being the champion of the innocent, for being God who forgives his people when they sin against him, etc., etc. You can read the whole prayer. What I'm saying is the whole dedication scene is about God, God, God. Not about the people. It's about God. As Solomon himself confessed, will God really dwell on earth? Asked Solomon. That's a good question. He's talking about this temple that he just built. Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built? Wow. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. Okay. He's right about that, isn't it? Built this marvelous temple, one of the seventh wonders, seven wonders of the ancient world. Yet Solomon in his own prayer says, are we really talking about taking God and confining him, bringing him down and sticking him in a marble box? Well, if the temple can't contain him, then why build it? And why dedicate it to God? Well, verse 41 and following talks about the foreigner who is not an Israelite. He's traveling to Jerusalem because of your name. For men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Wow. Now that's one of the closest statements you're going to find in the Old Testament to the New Testament idea of evangelism. Wanting the nations of the world to come and to know the true God of heaven. We see here that the dedication of the temple has God and his honor in the forefront. Even to the degree that Solomon anticipates foreigners coming to know God as Savior because they come to seek him out. Or again, the articles of gold, the silver, the bronze, which David dedicated to the Lord, were acknowledgments that the battles won by God against the multiple and formidable enemies of Israel could only have been accomplished with the intervention of God. His own confession before the Lord is this. Let me read it for you. This is King David. Who am I, O Sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? 
How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you. As we have all heard with our own ears. 2 Samuel 8, verse 18 and following. And when David speaks of Israel and himself as a king over Israel, listen to how he phrases things. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever and you, O Lord, have become their God did it. It's God, God, God. He's the important person. So although David speaks about Israel, what he says about Israel glorifies God as their redeemer, their deliverer, their sustainer. When speaking of himself, David says, Now, Lord, now, Lord God, keep forever your promise that you made concerning your servant in his house. Do as you promised. Why? So that your name will be great forever. Wow. Then men will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established forever. You see where his thinking is, don't you? It's not about David. It's about God and what he's done. We see this in our own text, verse 27. Nehemiah says at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, verse 31, I assigned two large choirs to give thanks to who? <laughs> To Nehemiah and the group? No, to God. And verse 46 speaks of songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So Nehemiah knew that the construction of this mammoth wall in but 52 days, chapter 6, verse 15, was possible only by the intervention of God. I could go on multiplying examples, but I think you get the point. The object of dedication was to bring honor and glory to God. That honor and glory consisted of praise and thanksgiving based on an honest recollection of the intervention of God in his people's lives for their good. The Bible says, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praise to his name, for that is pleasant. Psalm 135, verse 3. And then again, the last verse of the last psalm in the Bible says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Psalm 150, verse 6. So, what I'm saying here, 
The first idea of dedication is to praise and honor God. So not to pat ourselves on the back, say, wow, look at the, what those people did with that building. Look what they did with that little bit of uh, uh, money that they collected. What, look what they did for this mission project or whatever. No. The first idea of dedication is to praise and honor God. Secondly, dedications were made to set aside as sacred and as exclusive for God whatever it was that was being dedicated. For example, the dedications of Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, the dedication of the gold, the silver, the bronze articles of war that were seized by David, the money collected by Josiah, godly king, and yes, even this huge wall around Jerusalem were all set apart in the service of God in acknowledgement of his greatness, his goodness, his unique position in the lives of his people. True, there would be a vast difference in the way in which the temples were employed after their dedication than, say, the wall of Nehemiah. But the principle is the same. The distinction comes in what was being dedicated to God and for what purpose. The temple was Israel's worship center. And so under such a dedication, there were a whole host of God-given laws which could not be violated, Only the priest, remember, could enter the holy place. Only the high priest, the most holy place. And only once a year, never without a blood sacrifice. So there were rules. The wall, on the other hand, was dedicated as a barrier to protect the citizens of Jerusalem and to afford refuge and safety in the night from their enemies. Many homes were built on... We're not talking... When I say wall, we're not talking a fence... I see our neighbor has a fence between our property and his property. That's a fence. A wall is wider than this room. People built houses on the wall. Gatekeepers made their living from guarding the wall. So the dedication of the wall had a more can I say it this way, a more utilitarian purpose to it. Of course, people could walk on the wall, live in their homes on the wall, do all those things any normal society would do in the daily course of living. But beneath it all was Israel's realization that no wall of stone and mortar could protect them ultimately from invasion and captivity. And that's why Nehemiah told Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the enemies of Israel in Nehemiah's day, he told them, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim to its historic right to it. Chapter 2, verse 20. And when the enemy began to pour on the heat, Nehemiah encouraged the people by saying, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, 
chapter 4, verse 14. And in verse 20, he says, God will fight for us. So there's no idea here that the wall, not even their own armament, was going to protect them. The dedication of the wall signified that God had been the protector all along and would continue to be their protector. God was saying, my house is your house. I wonder if we think of things that way. My house is your house. My car is your car. My. Do we think of material things as being dedicated to the Lord? Now, how were these dedications carried out? Well, our own text has a model, verse 27 and following. It says, The Levites were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication. How are they going to celebrate? With songs of thanksgiving, with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Lyre is a stringed instrument, by the way, having... um, Equal strength, uh, equal length of strings, but not equal thicknesses. So you'd have thin wires, a little fatter, a little fatter, and so forth, and that's how they got the various tones. We read in verse 28, the singers were also brought. Verse 31, two large choirs were assigned to give thanks. One choir went to the right atop the wall, verse 31. Other went to the opposite direction, verse 38. Both choirs gave thanks at the house of God, verse 40. This is celebration. Sacrifices were made with rejoicing and great joy. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away, verse 43. Well, these people were making a ruckus. So let us not think that when we are approaching God in such a serious matter as dedicating or consecrating something to him, that this is to be some kind of a sober occasion. Absolutely not. It's a time for festivity. It's a time for singing and music and and joy. There's some great lessons here for us. Number one, God is worthy of our dedication of honor and praise, firstly, in our worship center, and secondly, in all the utilitarian things he gives us by his grace. He's worthy of honor and praise. I look at our building. We have a humble building by the world's standards. Our building has none of the rich ornamentation of crystal chandeliers or white columns on the edifice, no pipe organ to to the back of me, no mahogany staircases, no cherry bookcases in the office. But it is nonetheless a building which God has given us and which has stood at this location since the mid-1800s. The gospel is still preached here every Sunday, a century and a half after its construction. And there are a few church buildings that could say that if they could talk. 
You say, oh, well, I like our little building, and it's quaint, early American style and setting. No, that isn't the point, brethren. It isn't what you like or dislike that is the criteria for its acceptable use. You should be able to worship God in one of the great cathedrals of Europe if the gospel were preached there. And it would not be out of place for you to rejoice in the magnificent architecture of the stone columns, the gilded arches, the marble inlays, the painted frescoes, in those European cathedrals. But the modest nature of our building does not detract from its dedication to God. That's the point. Building belongs to God. It is because this structure is set apart for the worship of God that we give it the considerations we do. That's why we paint and repair. And most of you have seen what our deacons have just done with the building. It's why we improve as Josiah, King Josiah did, with the money that he used for the temple of his day. This is all also why we do not walk on the pews, swing from the light fixtures, throw soiled tissues or paper towels on the floor, and use the furniture as a trampoline. Some years back, we had some kids come that were doing those things, if you'll remember. They were visitors. Now, that doesn't mean that we set the building on a pedestal like some treasured jewel which can never be used in a utilitarian way. These walls should hear the sound of laughter and humor and rejoicing. Along with the teaching, there can be parties and the sound of power tools making repairs and the giggles of children listening to a funny story or watching their teacher make a fool of him or herself to illustrate a point in the Bible lesson. Choirs harmonizing, instruments playing loudly, including cymbals. People singing with enthusiasm the praises of God. They should be heard far away, verse 43, so that our neighbors know that we are a people who know and love God and want the whole world to know about it. And we're not ashamed of that. And getting the bell tower operative and ringing it on Sunday mornings is a wake-up call to all that God summons all men to worship him on this the Lord's day. Well, those are very important things. They're not all important, but they are important. So that's the first thing to learn. Secondly, let us learn here that more than things, more than buildings, money, and instruments, God wants you to be consecrated to him. The text we read in Second Chronicles 30 of Hezekiah's reinstitution of the Passover celebration said that a great number of priests consecrated themselves. Verse 24. Now, we have the notion that consecration is for priests. Now, that's for priests and pastors, for Sunday school teachers and elders and deacons, but not for the average member of the church. 
But that scripture goes on to say, and let me read it for you, verse 25, 2 Chronicles 30, the entire assembly of Judah rejoiced along with the priests and Levites and all who had assembled from Israel, including the aliens. And verse 27 says, the priests and Levites stood to bless the people and God heard them for their prayers reached the heavens. If you read the context, it says as a result of this consecration, the people, the people went out into their homes, hometowns, and they smashed down the idols and they destroyed the high places which they had set up for the worship centers of false gods. They got it. They got the message. And they said, we can't live like this anymore. We can't come to Jerusalem and worship God and then go back home and worship idols that we have set up in the groves and the fields. Verse 30 of our text says, when the priests had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. And verse 45 says, they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as did the singers and the gatekeepers. All the people were purified from the priests on down. They all consecrated themselves to God. And in Hezekiah's day, the proof of the sincerity of the people was demonstrated in the eradication of the idols from their lives. In Nehemiah's day, it was proven by bringing in of the first fruits and tithes, verse 44. The point being that when we consecrate ourselves to God, we are to do those things which God requires in our lives, and we are to correct those areas of disobedience, whatever those disobediences may be. I have an important question to ask. Do your prayers, do your prayers reach heaven? Do your prayers reach heaven? Does God hear you when you pray? Is there any joy or thanksgiving in your relationship with God? Or is it something that you just think is duty, drudgery, have to... If there's no joy there, are you consecrated to God? Are you devoted to the sovereign Lord? Does the will of Christ for your life mean anything to you? What about idols? Are there idols in your life which you love and serve more than you do Jesus? Could one of those idols be your own selfish desires? Are you doing the things God tells you to do in his word concerning stewardship of that with which he has blessed you? And I'm meaning more than money. What about your talent? What about your time? What about your know-how and your abilities? Is, does God get a portion of that? What areas of service to Christ might you be involved in if Christ had your heart? What would you be doing differently if Jesus were the Lord that you profess to follow? You see, this business of consecration unto God has far-reaching implications. 
It begins with purification from sin. The Bible says the blood of Jesus, God's Son, purifies us from all sin. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, verse 7, verse 9. That's where it begins. And as a result of being purified to serve the Lord, guess what? We get about serving the Lord because we love him and we're thankful for all that he's done for us. And we want to be more than just pew warmers. We want to be in service, in missions, caring for the building, outreach to our neighbors, and so on. May the Lord give us head knowledge and heart obedience to these responsibilities. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It's a challenge to us. We think of something that's dedicated to the Lord should be used for the Lord. Not just things, but people who are consecrated to God. Paul says, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. We have a life to live, that's true, but it's to be lived for the glory of God. And we can do this by your grace. I pray that you'll help us do it. Thank you, Lord, for committing yourself to your people. And even when we sin, that you are so forgiving and you bring us back. Sometimes you discipline us. You spank us to get our attention, to get us to repent. And that's even good for our souls. And we bless you for it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now our hymn before the communion service is 348 in Trinity 348. We'll take a 10-minute break after we sing the hymn. And then we'll regather when we hear the music for the Lord's table. Three, four, eight, and Trinity, the red hymnal. Let's stand. <clears throat>
10 minute break and then regather when you hear the music we'll have our uh, celebration at the Lord's table Thank you. 